again, it's not the deep dark corners of the web. It's the president and his buyers. I was I was on the air and interviewing one of the campaign spokespeople, and, and twice came after me personally in that. I'm like, guys, don't, people at home don't want to hear this shit. They don't. Yeah. Answer the question about the president's policies. Don't come after me. They don't care. They can't resist. And it's weak. I find that folks who go after you personally don't have an answer. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome to The Head and the Heart. I'm Perry Rogers. I'm Ed Borgato. Before we get started, remember you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podcast One. Well, Ed, it's been quite a week. Uh, this week we were presented with tapes from Bob Woodward's interview of President Trump uh, from Bob Woodward's book, Rage. And in the tapes, President Trump admitted that he downplayed the virus, that he's always liked to downplay it. Give me your thoughts on that. Well, you know, the first thoughts I have is how interesting it is when you hear the president in his own words express, you know, what it is he's trying to do rather than just reading it in a book. Um, there's a tendency for people, I think a lot of people, to discredit a book or a magazine article or the newspaper itself when someone is quoted and they don't, you know, there's much more power hearing it in someone's own words. And I think it stunned a lot of people. I don't think there was much of a surprise there. I think there was so much evidence beforehand that the administration was underplaying it, uh, underplaying the threat, underplaying the severity of the virus. And, you know, hearing the president say so really came as no surprise. I think what interested me was to, again, I'm always fascinated by how far people will go to pretzel their brain, to hold on to a position. You know, we've talked about this before that, People should not want to be wrong about a position any longer than they have to. We should all be working every day to figure out, well, how can I get to the truth? And, you know, there's a large segment of the population that simply doesn't want to engage in that work. They want to hold on to their prior belief no matter what. And I was most interested in the response we got from some people where they said, well, why didn't Bob Woodward talk about this earlier, <laughs> as if Bob Woodward were the president. It defies any logic or understanding that what people are upset about isn't that the president withheld this information from the public, but they're upset that a journalist didn't tell us earlier as if they would believe it if he had told us in March, but they don't believe it when he tells us in September. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I, I can even understand the throughput there. Yeah. You know, what we're stuck in, though, is a situation where people aren't even debating the underlying issue. They're debating whether or not a thing happened. They're caught up on whether or not the facts are the facts. And I think what's infuriating is to have the White House press secretary, you know, standing at the podium with the presidential seal on it that we pay for her salary in that room and say the president didn't say what he said. At least the president owned it and defended it by saying, I didn't want people to panic. He's offering an explanation as to where his head was. And the white house press secretary is taking a position that he didn't actually say it, that he wasn't downplaying it. He hasn't downplayed it when he clearly said in his own words, 
that was my intent to downplay it because he didn't want the public to panic. Yeah. You know, we'll get into this. We've got uh, our guest today is Jim Shudo. Uh, he is uh, an anchor at CNN. Fascinating life that he's lived at a pretty young age. And, um, you know, he talks about this cadence that the president has to minimize issues. That isn't a function of minimizing them publicly. It's that he's minimizing them with how he can deal with it. He mm-hmm. shrinks an issue so that he feels like he can absorb it. And, you know, I'm not sure that that is the, well, let me say it differently. I am certain that that is not the um, functioning of a really robust mind and a robust ability to deal with truth. And that, I think, is the real um, legacy that is going to exist from the Trump presidency, is our ability as a country to deal with truth, to deal with the single truth that exists on issues. You know, we've talked about this. We talked about this last night, that there are issues that can absolutely be debated, but not everything has two sides. There are some things that are factually true. The sun does come up in the east. That is a fact. And so when we start to try to create alternate facts, you know, alternate truths, which I heard from from someone recently, it defies logic and it undermines our ability to advance our society. And that's the real cost here. This isn't a function of the Hatfields and the McCoys, one side won and one side lost. Uh, No matter what, we're all in this together. And so when we're not able to have a common language about what truth looks like, we cannot advance our society. And that's this constant cost that we're dealing with simply because people find the truth inconvenient. You know, when, when something is true and it's inconvenient that it's true for someone, it threatens their identity. You know, it really does. They feel like they're being attacked. They're feeling not just that their worldview is being called into question, but their identity, their culture, their sort of way of life is being attacked. And there's a natural tendency to want to, you know, push back against that, to figure out a way how to wiggle out of that corner rather than saying, huh, does this reframe the way I think about it? Or is this something I should consider? But I think Tim Snyder said this, don't be wrong one moment longer than you need to be. And to that point, Ed, uh, about not being wrong a moment longer than we need to be. uh, Jim Shudo's book, the madman theory talks about how Trump in this world has believed that every president before him has gotten foreign policy wrong, that we've been wrong a lot longer than we needed to be. Our guest today is Jim Shudo. He is an anchor and chief national security correspondent for CNN, reporting and providing analysis on all aspects of U.S. national security including foreign policy, the military, terrorism, and the intelligence community, a position he took on in September of 2013. From 2011 to 2013, he served as chief of staff to U.S. Ambassador Gary Locke at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. He was formerly ABC News senior foreign correspondent based in London. He is the author of The Madman Theory. Jim Shudo, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here. The introduction of the book grabbed me right away when you said that uh, what this book is about is when a sitting president decides that every president before him, Republican or Democrat, has been wrong about the world and the United States place in it. And it's, it's really interesting, you know, framing it that way, because 
a lot of people like the unpredictability and sort of chaos and brash style and other people view it as a symptom of a impulsive and underprepared president that doesn't have any long-term strategic vision and is just trying to win the news cycle. And so I want to start, I want to give you an opportunity to tell a story from the book that I think is just riveting. Early in the Trump presidency, trying to remember their names, it was uh, Kislyak and Sergei Lazarov, who's, I'm sorry, he's the foreign minister. The ambassador is Sergei Kislyak. Is that correct? Exactly. They met with President Trump in the Oval Office. And during that meeting, a few unusual things occurred. Um, as reported by the press, the, there was no U.S. photographer or press present, but mm-hmm. the photograph from that meeting was, was taken by a Russian uh, member of the uh, me- Russian media. And in that meeting, uh, apparently uh, some sensitive intelligence uh, that had been sourced through the Israelis with respect mm-hmm. to ISIS and Syria had been revealed to the Russians. And I want you to tell the story of you know, sort of that meeting, but more importantly, the consequences that came from it with respect to uh, a Russian asset that the U.S. had cultivated and, and what occurred afterwards. So this is a ongoing theme, two big ones, right, of the Trump presidency. What explains his fealty, right, to Russia, his, his accommodation? Because he's tough on virtually everyone else, adversaries, China, Iran and allies, Canada, NATO, you name it, right? But with Russia, he just will not call this country out or very rarely will do so. I mean, we see that recently, bounties on U.S. soldiers, poisoning a Russian opposition leader. He's asked, he won't say the simple words, don't do it, Moscow. Why is that? And I asked everyone I interviewed for this book to explain that. uh, And their best answer was he has a strange admiration for Vladimir Putin, the man, his power, the system of government, their style of leadership. So with, with that kind of big picture issue, let, let's let, like zero in on what happened here. So it's May 2017, early in his term, months after he was, uh, he was elected in an election which U.S. intelligence judge Russia had interfered in uh, and, and did, to, did so to denigrate his opponent, something that the president sensitive to from the very beginning, but we should note also encouraged publicly during the campaign. So he meets with the, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, and, and Sergei Kislyak, uh, the, the ambassador. And in that meeting, shares highly, highly classified intelligence with them. Highly classified. Supplied, we would later learn and report CNN by Israel, regarding ISIS in, in Syria and regarding a specific terror threat from ISIS in Syria. So, so the most closely held, supplied by a partner country, right? So there's even a greater kind of classified factor there because you want to protect your friend who shared this highly classified stuff with you and on a threat that is very front and center, right? The possibility of terrorists killing Americans. Shares it with the Russians. Why? You know, what was the point in, in that moment? Trump seems to like to share stories with people. I mean, you've seen even in the Woodward books now, he really wanted to tell Bob Woodward that we have a secret nuclear program. Why, you know, why reveal that, you know, to, to the public, given all the sensitivities? Now, with Russia, you, you have the added element of, when you look at it big picture, it's not just about that moment and trying to just impress two Russian guys in the Oval Office, but 
how does it fit into the broader relationship? What is he looking for in return, right? You have that open question, still never answered definitively since then. Now, what happens in the days after this sharing of classified intelligence is that the U.S. makes a decision, which it had been, and when I first reported this uh, a little more than a year ago, they had been mulling this for some time, going back to the Obama administration, but they make the final decision after that meeting to extract from Russia America's highest level security source, intelligence source, covert source inside the Russian government, inside the Kremlin, highest levels of the national security infrastructure at the Kremlin. It's amazing that the USA, that the US had that source and had it for more than 10 years, according to, to my reporting and, and others who, who later followed on. But they made a decision at that point, it's just too dangerous to keep him there. Why in that moment? Why in particular after that Oval Office meeting? Now we know concerns had existed, I said, back to the Obama administration because they'd used intelligence from this source to help make the assessment that Russia had interfered in the election to help Donald Trump, right? So this is someone who knows and has access to the thinking of the Russian president, uh, right down to being able to take photos of presidential documents. Now, the, the CIA denied that that Oval Office meeting had any connection to the extraction of the source, but the timing was notable. I spoke to a source involved at a very high level in the discussions who said that it did play into that decision at that point. You know, the bottom line is we lost a very high level source and, and, you know, certainly don't have it now. I mean, you could try to cultivate something similar over time, but at a time when tensions between the U.S. and Russia are growing, not shrinking, but by any means, uh, we've lost this vision into the thinking and decision making of the Kremlin. It's a, it's a remarkable uh, story from the Trump presidency. Yeah, it really is a remarkable story. You say in the book that the kind of intelligence that a person in that position, an asset at that level, would provide would only be available to the president, the director of the CIA, and maybe a few senior officials. How many people in the world would know the identity of this person? Probably single digits, right? Right. Uh, you know, because you're talking about president, director of the CIA, a couple others. And you might have circumstances where folks knew that such a source in that category existed, but didn't know who the specific person was, right? You know, it was, you know, you heard that phrase, need to know basis, right? I mean, this would, would be a need to know basis. And it, and it was the judgment of the U.S. intelligence community that for years, Russia did not know that this source existed inside the Kremlin. Of course, if they did, you would imagine what would happen to this person. But they were getting increasingly nervous that this person might be exposed and therefore made the decision to extract, which beyond being a loss of a valuable source, it's also a dangerous thing to do, right? I mean, you got to extract someone from unfriendly territory. Yeah, un under the surface there, the thing that I thought about as I was reading that story is that it must have taken years, if not decades, to cultivate a source of, of, of that quality, uh, of that caliber. And it would have taken some luck because that person would no doubt have been first, you know, made a source when they were in a lower position in the Russian government and the good luck that that person, you know, advanced their career. And it made me think about just broadly that that sort of thing needs to happen over the course of several administrations. People, you know, in our government need to hand that off to a new president, a new set of political appointees, you know, in, in the intelligence community. And it kind of speaks to the problem, at least as I see it, as this sort of Trump foreign policy, you know, the breaking the chain 
that normally, you know, links us from administration to administration that keeps these long-term advantages going for us. Well, we know that this source existed for more than 10 years, right? So you're right. It took a long time. And there has to be some element of luck or just brilliance on the part of this source to kind of maneuver his way uh, that, that high um, in the hierarchy there. There's another element to this, which is, and you're right, you know, shared through administrations back in a time when administrations of either party shared a view of Russia, right, as a hostile power and that sources like this are important. We're past that. You know, this president does not see the threat. I, you know, I have in the book in multiple instances, he does not see Russia as a threat as his own senior national security advisors do or the intelligence indicates. And by the way, and I talk about this in the book regarding this Kremlin source, the president does not see the value of intel sources and hostile powers. In fact, he questions it. He views it as damaging to his personal relationships with those leaders, and therefore we should not have them. That's a remarkable thing for a U.S. president, commander-in-chief, to, to, to say and believe. Intelligence is a pillar of protecting U.S. national security, particularly in adversaries, but not confined to adversaries, right? particularly in your most severe adversaries like Russia. The president made public comments about North Korea. I recount these in the book where he says after Kim Jong-un killed his half-brother with a nerve agent in, in the airport in Kuala Lumpur, the information was that he had been an informant of the CIA. The president said publicly on the White House lawn, I don't think we should be spying on Kim Jong-un and it won't happen under my auspices. So he, he doesn't believe it helps him personally. Uh, and two, he's also expressed as a report in the book to senior aides that he doesn't believe the information they provide because they're kind of turning on their own country. Now, you look at the history of America back to George Washington, right? He had spies uh, on the British. Uh, think of the importance of it in World War II and beyond. Uh, so he's got a different view of the world and one that his own advisors think is deeply damaging to U.S. national security. You talk about in the book that uh, Rome started to fall because they wanted the various provinces to pay tribute uh, for protection. When you look at what Trump has done with our alliances and the world alignment, he has said to countries who have been our allies, you need to pay more. And he has then gone out and said to countries that we have not aligned with in the past, look, I'll sell you these goods uh, and I'll give you some protection. Uh, we can we can make a deal. Do you think that Trump is more a reflection of our lack of understanding of what is really at stake when it comes to foreign policy? Listen, a lot of people still understand and believe in the strength and importance of alliances. Certainly, the president's own senior most advisor, even in the Trump administration, this is recounted in the book from H.R. McMaster talks about his frustration trying to explain to the president the importance of alliances. Uh, you know, so people who work for him, you know, Republican and Democrat, uh, you know, public voices on the Hill see the importance of it. Um, does the public, maybe not to the degree it did in the past, I mean, on these issues, the public needs leadership sometimes, right? I mean, everybody's got, you know, we've got short memories, right? We don't remember what happened two weeks ago, let alone a few years ago. I mean, today's the, the anniversary of 9-11 people might need to be reminded that NATO allies invoked the mutual defense clause of the NATO alliance after 9-11 to come to the mutual defense of the U.S. And they backed that up. They sent forces to Afghanistan. And many countries lost 
their soldiers there. They bled in that war to protect their ally America. So you don't have to look back all the way to World War II to think alliances, it happened. And yet we have a president who does not see the value of NATO by, by the accounts of his own advisors. And, you know, listen, listen to John Bolton. John Bolton thinks, and I heard from folks who worked in this administration as well, that if he's reelected, he might just up and pull out of NATO, not just trying to squeeze more money out of them, but might just pull out. And not just NATO, might pull U.S. forces off the Korean Peninsula if South Korea does not quintuple its pay there, might signal, as he has hinted at, that what Japan should get nukes, and that way it don't have to be under our nuclear umbrella. Let them start another arms race over here. He doesn't see it. And yes, people, listen, folks need to be reminded. I try to talk about that in the book, about you know, the things that these alliances bring. I, I have a mind-blowing back and forth with Peter Navarro in the book about U.S. ally Canada. Canada yeah. Yeah. trying to get him just to grant that Canada is a friend. And he, he won't do it. He's like, are they really? Because um, I, I, I asked him, I said, you're using the same cudgel against Canada as you are against China, tariffs, right, in the midst of yeah. a trade. Well, he's like, and I said, but they're, you know, they're an ally. China's, he's like, is, is Canada really an ally? I said, well, I don't know, stormed the beaches of Normandy with us right up to Afghanistan. They lost. And I, I've been to Afghanistan more than a dozen times. And I always saw the Canadian troops are tip of the spear. They did not, like, operate under some crazy rules of engagement. They were there. They lost lives close to 200 lives. He's like, well, did they do it for us or did it for themselves? Dismiss it beyond belief of Canada. You know, yeah, the, is that the, the kind of world we want to live in? Yeah, this this line of thinking is very puzzling to me. You know, and, and people should remember that the Obama administration also asked our NATO allies to boost their spending so that it would be yeah. um, in line with the agreement to spend a percentage of your GDP on defense. But right. they did it in a way where... They weren't trying to embarrass our best friends on the public stage. And Trump kind of takes this, you know, uh, attitude of like, well, those borders of yours look really nice. It'd be a shame if something happened to them. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a mob mentality. And I think it's really important that we find a way to remind people that we borne most of the cost of the post-World War II order. We've also gotten the most benefit. Mm -hmm. Trump tries to communicate to the American public that we're suckers that we're spending all this money, that we're the ones being used. But it's been the United States that has benefited enormously from the relative peace and prosperity and the order that we've led after World War II. Listen, you know, no war in Europe, at least no world war in Europe for 70 some odd years that, you know, beyond peace and the just inherent benefits of that, right? You, you have a massive trading partner there, right? You have the spread of democracy there, you know, shared values, that sort of thing, even, even in Asia too, right? I mean, these alliances, military presence, keep the trade routes open, you know, keep the trade flowing. But the president consistently sees things in a very one-dimensional way. It's about money, money. How much are you paying? How much am I paying? And trade, very simplistic view of trade, if there's, a, if there's a, a trade account deficit, we're being robbed. And you talk to economists, there are some places you buy more from than you sell to. Uh, you and I buy more from the grocery than it buys from us because the grocery's got food. I mean, there's like, if you think of the simple, but he doesn't see it that way. And he doesn't see any of the ancillary benefit around those relationships to the country's detriment, frankly. And listen, you know, folks can say, by not, for instance, holding a unified front against Russia, that someday Russia 
will not be deterred and take something away from us. Well, they've already done that in Europe in a number of ways, but also from us. I mean, they, they attacked they had a very direct attack on, on our political process. Right. 2016, they tried again in 2018, and they're doing it right now. So it's not some like figment of our imagination somewhere down the road. It's happening right now. But the president doesn't see it and won't stand up to it. And that's the thing. You know, it's, and I don't know what trade benefit he's getting from Russia, right? I mean, we don't buy a lot from them, and they don't buy from us. But Yeah, the, the you know, people could should be and could be forgiven for thinking something strange is going on and it not and it not be automatically an anti-trump type sentiment you've re, you you do a good job in the book of reminding us of some small things uh which aren't so small when you think about it but they get lost in the mix which is when he has met with putin privately mm. he had asked the, the the translator for the notes confiscated the notes from the translator and instructed that person not to speak to anybody about what that meeting is, which is a huge breach in protocol, because it doesn't give other people in the administration and the intelligence community an opportunity to analyze the conversation and to see what it is that Putin might be signaling. Um, And you also point out the freedom of navigation exercise, which was canceled in the Black Sea, Mm -hmm. uh, to not antagonize Russia, which these freedom to navigate exercises are simply the Navy trucking on through international waters to let everyone know this is open for everyone. This is open for trade and nobody messes with it because the Navy is patrolling the world. And he canceled one in the Black Sea to not you know, agitate Russia. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is strange. The easiest Trump administration argument to disprove is that no one's been tougher on Russia than Trump because he's had so many instances where he has not stood up to Russia as it has amped up, not tamped down its aggression, whether territorial or election interference or challenging U.S. forces in the air and at sea and dangerous encounters, they've done more, not less. So from a simple test of has the Trump administration approach worked, it hasn't based on that measure. You know, in terms of steps you take, yes, supplied anti-tank weapons to Ukrainians, which the Obama administration did not. But keep in mind, the president held that military assistance back to get dirt on Joe Biden. I mean, that's the, the root of the Ukraine scandal, right? And by the way, the administration has slow rolled a lot of sanctions and they just rolled back some more on, on senior Russian figures, on, only forced by large majorities on the Hill. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to, to defeat that argument that they've somehow been, been tougher. So then the question becomes, why? You know, you mentioned uh, his communications with Vladimir Putin. You know, one of, the, one of the other legacies of the Ukraine call, the perfect phone call, right, is fewer people being on calls now. And those transcripts put under greater protection so that fewer people can read them. Why? You know, you can make an argument. You don't want things to leak out. But, you know, uh, what is he talking about then? What is he sharing? Well, I ask administration officials all the time, okay, well, in those private calls, has he warned Putin away from interfering in the election? They won't say. I don't know. Why won't the president say? So we have less and less transparency on that as, as we go forward. And the president's public comments or lack of public comments stand stand for themselves. We have less and less transparency. But what I thought was interesting about your book and what the throughput is, is that it's one thing to engage with adversaries over these issues. And he has engaged with China. Mm. Uh, he has engaged with North Korea, whether you like the way he's done it or not. But what I find fascinating is that he has engaged with everyone and he's engaged with everyone individually. 
There's no alliance whatsoever that he has taken to any one of these engagements. And so you think on the one hand, well, if he were just isolationist, then he wouldn't engage. And he also wouldn't have the alliances that we'd want. But here he's proactively engaging with people. He's fighting people. And there's not an example where he has said, come alongside me. China, for example. Look, we all appreciate that he is taken a a stance against their theft of our intellectual property. But even on that issue, to not have an alliance that you bring in, and if you think about it, it's commensurate with his personality. Mm. There isn't an example where he has engaged other people because using other people shows weakness. Is there any time in our nation's history where we've been so active in our engagements and so dormant? Yeah. In our alliances that you can think of? Not in recent history, certainly. Um, listen, you know, even Washington talked about the importance of alliances. And, uh, so going all the way back to the beginning, you, you, can, you can argue, I mean, to some degree, you don't even have to argue the point, but it, it seems pretty clear that, for instance, standing up to China would have been stronger with your allies on your team, right? I mean, that's the, the TPP would have suited, it seems, Trump's interest regarding China perfectly, but, you know, as with so many things, that was an Obama thing, we're out of it, you know, regardless of the consequences. He did it single-handedly and weakened his hand, arguably. Now, like you, and I write about this extensively in the book, I'm someone who thinks it was long overdue to stand up to China on a whole host of malign activities. So on that, it's progress, no question. The question is then, would you not have been stronger uh, with, with those allies at hand? similar, you know, to to a whole host of other crises. Um, Would you be stronger, you know, in Syria, right, if you stood by your Syrian Kurdish allies, you know, this kind of thing, you know, an almost deliberate self-destructiveness based on that single-minded, I can do it better by myself. But again, even with China, uh, while he should have stood up, uh, he really has nothing to show for it. He's got a trade deal where it was phase one, then you write about this in the book, um, looks to some of his own advisors as capitulation. Yeah. You know, you spend time in Beijing and you've been appointed, you know, under an administration. Is it shocking to you that we have so little to show for it? And yet for his base, they're still so satisfied. Well, that's true of so much, right? You could have so little to show for it. I mean, he's claiming... You know, he's claiming now that he rescued the auto industry. I mean, it's not in the stats, right, in terms of manufacturing jobs coming home. And in fact, obviously, gets the history wrong because it was the Obama administration, right, in, in, the, in the financial crisis who bailed him out. On China, you know, what you have is the standoff, an escalating standoff. You, you don't have the concessions in return. And arguably, China's been more, not less aggressive. I mean, they've kind of stolen Hong Kong in the last several weeks, right? Um, and, and there is real concern about escalation, without control, right? There's a constant, you know, one-upmanship going on right now with uncertain outcome. I mean, Steve Bannon talks in my book about the prospect of war with China in the next five years. I mean, that's an alarming prospect. And there are folks in Trump's circle who wouldn't mind to see that, right? I mean, the world does not want to see that. Um, So standoff for standoff's sake, difficult to see what the strategic gain is from that unless you have a strategy or vision as to what you know, the quid pro quo at some point is, and it's not clear. It hasn't been articulated by the president. And this is a president who constantly has confidence and overconfidence by the 
description of some of his own senior advisors in his own abilities just to calibrate and make it all work out in the end, you know? You know, we were talking about the Woodward Burke earlier. And one thing about your book that I really like is it's not gossipy. And what I mean by that is not that, quote, go- I don't necessarily mean gossipy could, is a bad thing. I think some of the things that you read in these other books that have been written about Trump are important, you know, to know the details. But your book's really just a much more dispassionate look at the foreign policy choices and implications of these Trump years. And, you know, I really like that. I appreciate that. I mean, I tried, my approach was to make it an account and an analysis, right? I mean, one, talk only to people who serve the president at the highest level. So they had firsthand experience of this, but then try to tie it together in a worldview. What is the president's worldview? What's behind it? How does it play out? And then test it, right? You know, before and after. I mean, the final chapter is like, okay, here's what he inherited with North Korea. Here's what he's leaving. Here's what he inherited with Iran, Russia, China, Syria. And here's what he's leaving so that you could, you know, ask the question, did it work? You know, by the simple measures, is it better or worse now? Well, North Korea has more, not fewer nuclear weapons. Looks worse. Russia is closer to a nuclear weapon than they were before. Iran has enriched more uranium. Yeah, that's what Iran, not not Russia, Uh, but Iran. Yes, exactly. And Russia is more aggressive, not less aggressive. So we want to talk to you a little bit about the media, but just let's just stay on the book for a little bit longer, because I think a lot of people like me are fascinated by North Korea, because it's really just impenetrable to figure out what's going on over there. And you pose an interesting question um, by asking, you know, who's being played here? Mm. Is Kim Jong-un playing Trump or is Trump playing him? And so talk about that a little bit, because it's very unusual that the American president has given this much personal time to the dictator of North Korea. And Trump has framed it as a win that he's been able to meet with him in person. But in actuality, it was an enormous propaganda win for the North Koreans Based on this administration's own metric, its own goal with North Korea, complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. Remember that? They don't say that anymore, but that's what they said at the beginning. Based on their standard, it failed because, one, you, you had none of that. And in fact, they've got more nukes, not fewer nukes. They've got a more advanced ballistic missile program. They're about, it looks like, to test again a submarine launch missile, which would expand their capabilities so, you know, who played who in, in the bromance and all the love letters, the love affair? Based on the results, Kim played Trump, right? Now, there's no shame in trying, and Trump is not the first president to try both force and negotiation with North Korea. Obama tried it, Bush tried it, Clinton tried it, and they all failed. So, so Trump becomes just the latest U.S. president to get played or North Korea came out ahead, right? I mean, there's no, listen, the country's under enormous financial pressure, but if hemming in their nuclear program and their military capability is the goal, as stated by this administration, then they failed. I'm curious uh, about the reporting side of all this. Can you talk about how anonymous sources are developed? And and can you talk a little bit about the conversations that you have with these sources about whether they want to go on the record or not? You know, Jennifer Griffin at Fox had a great line this week. She said, well, my sources are not anonymous to me. And I thought, you know, that's probably not articulated enough. Um, You know, these are people that you're working with uh, on a regular basis. 
to give you uh, this information. They trust you, you trust them. But talk a little bit about how that's developed and how much you try to get those sources to maybe go on the record or, or that you don't. Well, for this book, by and large, they were on the record. I wanted that to be the case because I wanted folks to put their name to, to these judgments. And, and by and large, they were willing to do it to, to a remarkable degree, it seems to me. Uh, and I think that why is that beyond, yes, relationships? And I hope my credibility is that is that they feel that these issues are important enough and that they want to uh, get their experience of this president and, and his approach to the world out there, right? And they're willing to attach their name. Uh, in this book and in other reporting, I do sometimes use anonymous sources. And uh, listen, you know, the, the whole Trump pushback on anonymous sources is, is so disingenuous as to be silly. First of all, Trump himself was an anonymous source for years. I mean, remember John Barron, I've been talking to newspaper reporters, but a whole host of Trump administration officials are anonymous sources every day. The same ones who criticize, you know, oh, by the way, I can't speak about that on the record. So it's it's silly in that sense. And it's also, you know, from a journalistic sense, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's necessary, right? I mean, we wouldn't know about Watergate without anonymous sources. Sometimes folks are speaking about stuff that they shouldn't be speaking about, but they feel a duty to, or, you know, through good reporting, you're able to piece stuff together and they want to set the record straight, right? It's, um, you know, I, I find that the attacks on anonymous sources are almost always, not always, but almost always, um, you know, a, a matter of whether they're helping or hurting you or you yourself are that anonymous source, you know, but for this book, knowing that kind of reflex action, uh, I did my best to get nearly everyone on the record. What is generally the motive of someone who works in a presidential administration or uh, perhaps works for someone in Congress? What's generally the motivation that, that they want to speak to the media and, and remain anonymous? Well, for a lot of folks, it's because they, oh, so, and why remain anonymous? Well, let's see. They're dealing well, with, th- well, that part's easy because I think they, they yeah. certainly don't want to be the, known for giving the information, but what motivates yeah. them to, to give that information? Often it's uh, a sense of duty or belief that something bad is happening, right? Um, and they want to get the word out. They want to expose it. Often either primarily or as part of the motivation, it's self-preservation, right? They want to get their version of events out there to protect themselves. Um, sometimes you got to be aware of this. Um, you know, there are a whole host of, you know, other um, agenda, right, that you have to keep your eyes open for. And that's why you talk to as many people as possible to make sure that, you know, the view you're getting from this one person is not contradicted by others. So it's a combination of things. But I do think that more often than people realize, it's it's not folks trying to be sneaky or leak classified information or or so on, but, but that, that they believe the truth is X and they want to get the truth out there because they think it has a as a benefit. Now, I'm not discounting the, the personal motivations. Now, now, those personal motivations also play on the other side, because I talk to folks who either share things off the record or will not go on the record because they want to preserve their own money-making ability in Washington, or they don't want to be exiled from their tribe, whatever that tribe is. And that happens. And you, you know, it's interesting with this administration, because you have a whole host of people inside this administration who believe the president is incompetent and is endangering the country. You've heard that. You've heard some folks come right out and say it. 
and, and you might even say there's there's a few. I don't want to say more and more every day, but you're, you're seeing more as we get closer to the election. But there are a whole host of others who won't do it. And I and I I was talking with one the other day, and I said, if not now, when? If you think that this is an issue of national security import, what are you waiting for? There's an election coming up. I mean, the, the, this the dangers you're talking about are happening today. What what when are you going to you know? do it. Explain it to me. And oftentimes they don't have a good, or at least not a satisfying answer to me. It's absolutely fascinating. You know, the, the press is, uh, our founding fathers knew that this is how you account and make sure that we are checking power. And it is our first and last line of defense against unadulterated, unfiltered power. And I've been fascinated to watch this discussion that's happened from people in power, meaning the president and this administration, claim that the press is the enemy of the people. Talk a little bit about what it's like to be in the press at this time and have 35 to 40% of the country by this line that press is the enemy of the people. I mean, first, let's talk about the president's motivations. They're transparent. He said it to Leslie Stahl in December 2017 after his election. She said, "Why, why all these attacks? And he said, uh, not, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm sure you've seen the interview or her recounting of it. He said, well, so if you guys do critical stories of me, I could then uh, undermine those stories. Straightforward. He he loves the press when they're singing his praise. When they're not, they're the enemy of the people. So it's weaponized, right, in his own interest. That's, a, that's his transparent motivation. That's a quality of this president that he's, there's no secret about this. You know, it's pretty obvious what he's doing. The effect on the country is damaging, Right. Because, um, you know, it's it's further uh, polarized folks and it's also polarized information so that you have increasingly two realities. And that's not entirely Trump, but he has definitely fueled it. I mean, some of it is our bubble mentality reinforced by social media and friendly media where you can kind of retreat your bubble and have your own. Uh, reality that is not penetrated by another point of view. But then then the, the follow-on effect of that is that then there's not even, there's not an accepted reality about things that there is no both sides to, right? We know how many people have died from COVID. The president has raised, you know, this idea that he was just downplaying the virus months ago, not true. I mean, doing it last week, he shared a conspiracy theory about the death toll, you know, yeah. uh, being manufactured. So, you know, the things that used to, for a large majority of the people, and there have always been conspiracy theories accepted, uh, uh, that are now like in question. Basic facts of the economy, science, you know, I mean, listen, we've straight up conspiracy theorists endorsed for Congress by this president. Right. One of of these GOP candidates, QAnon, is is a 9-11, and here we are on the anniversary, a 9-11 conspiracy theorist. You know, and those folks have been around for a while. Now the person's running for Congress. But yeah. what's that like for you on a daily basis? Do you experience yeah, was, that when you're out and about? Yeah. Do you have people, you know, hey, I saw you on TV. You guys were the enemy. Or is that just something that we hear him say and you don't feel that? Mostly in person, people come up and say, thanks so much for the job you guys are doing. We need you now more than ever in person, almost exclusively. And then some of that, you know, is a bit regional, although I do travel in other places in the country, in the country. Uh, but mostly in person. And I've never heard that more than in this period of time. Thanks so much for what you guys are doing. We need you. And that's from folks on the street or from, you know, people you interview, et cetera. 
journalism uh, needs real friends right now. Yesterday, Perry and I were discussing this. You know, we were both individually reading your book and, and talking about it. And he made a very good point. You said that a lawyer should never defend himself. The doctor should never perform surgery on himself. And in that, along that line of thinking, it's hard for the media to be the one to defend itself because it's, it can sound self-serving at times. It really, journalism really needs other people to speak up for it. Yeah. I mean, you got to, what can you do? You can defend your story uh, as best you can. And folks have different views of issues, right? And I get that. And yeah. They'll agree more with the Wall Street Journal editorial page than the New York Times one, right? I mean, I get that. But um, not agreeing on fundamental issues of fact is a problem. And then making it personal. It's a personal aspect. Again, it's not the deep, dark corners of the web. It's the president and his buyers. I was, I was on the air and interviewing one of the campaign spokespeople and, and twice came after me personally in that. I'm like, guys, people at home don't want to hear this shit. They don't. Yeah. Answer the question about the president's policies. Don't come after me. They don't care. They can't resist. And it's weak. I find that folks who go after you personally don't have an answer. Right? That's right. That's yeah. right. It's, it's schoolyard bully bullshit. You know. I'm fascinated. You know, um, one of your colleagues, Brian Stelter, just came out with a book, Hoax, that talks about Fox News. And I think what interests me the most about Fox News and saddens me the most, our family was in the broadcasting business. Uh, my dad owned NBC affiliates throughout the West. And he always had such reverence and respect for the news department, leaving it alone, mm. letting it do its thing. And Fox News is such a transparent business. It is not a function of the news. And here's why that becomes obvious every day. They are the only news station, and I say news in quotes, that tells you that if you listen to any of their competitors, you have fallen into a trap. Yeah. Whether I'm at CNN or MSNBC or ABC or CBS, they don't tell me that everyone else is bad except them, that this, they're, they are the single source of information. And in all honesty, that is exactly the effective measurements that cults take, which is if you hear anybody else, it's wrong. And I think that that changed this. And, and I think it's something that you know, my friends who watch Fox, they say, well, CNN is just as bad or MSNBC is just as bad. I always okay. say to them, no, because they don't tell you not to listen to anybody else. And that distinction is important, do you think? I do. Listen, they make stuff up. They up and make stuff up. I'll tell you about this book. The minute this book was announced, before it came out, Fox News wrote a story, which is still out there, and I'm sure how a lot of its viewership says, you know, I forget the headline, but it's like, Jim Shudo's anti-Trump book undermines his credibility. I was like, you didn't read the book because it's not out yet. Have you read it? By the way, it's been reviewed by the Washington Examiner, conservative outlet, saying I take a very fair uh, approach to Trump's policy, give credit where credit is due, try to explain the thinking. And I've heard this from a number of conservatives. They wrote the piece. They didn't read the book. And I know they did because they didn't have it. It wasn't done yet. But it's still out there. So this makes stuff up. And, you know, when when, uh, other outlets, including CNN, make mistakes and we own up to them and those are massive stories on Fox News. When they, they, no, no effort, you know, to correct well, I, something like that. So it's you know it's um, it is different. So I don't buy the both sides thing that like we're just a mirror image. It's not the way we operate. Well, that is the right barometer. You know, if if 
if you see a news outlet, whether it be print or television, admit a mistake and correct a story, it tells you something right there. You know, and some people choose to attack it as like, well, see, they have a bias or they want it. But, you know, respectable and legitimate news journalism means owning up to a mistake and correcting the record. Let's take CNN, for instance, where you are. Where do you think CNN can do better in terms of, um, you know, it is confusing for people sometimes. You know, when you turn on cable news, you're going to get a mix of news, analysis, and opinion. And it's all intermingled. You know, is there a way cable networks can do a better job of distinguishing between those things, either by, you know, uh, by, graphic. by graphic describing a show or, you know. Yeah. I, listen, that's, a, that's above my pay grade. I think that um, when we do a story, a news story, it is massively vetted. And we don't call it a news story unless it's been through that vetting and editing, right? You know, you do have people express opinions on this network, uh, but we don't build them that way. We don't build them the same way, you know? I just try, I mean, I try as best as I can to focus on that. And I've, I, you know, I've never lived through a period of time as a journalist where my and my team stories aren't more vetted than now, right? And because we want, you know, we always want to get it right, but you know, you know, the, the, the atmosphere is so nuclear at this point, you know, you, you have even more incentive to just quadruple check, right? Uh, so we're working really hard to do that. Well, I, you know, to your point, to the efforts you made, I found this book to be uh, incredibly balanced in your analysis, very fair about giving him credit where it was due, but also pointing out uh, that the road that he's taken us down with, with uh, several adversaries seems to, at this point, to have created more issues. The book is The Madman Theory. Jim Shudo, thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. It was great. Thank you for taking so much time. I appreciate your interest, and I look forward to sitting across from you at a dinner table one time when we could do this in person. Yeah, I would love it. Great. Thanks so much. Well, Ed, that was fascinating. Yeah. I really, I really enjoyed speaking to him, and I honestly enjoyed the book. Um, if you're at all interested in uh, really what is a balanced look at Trump's foreign policy, and uh, Jim Jim Shudo does a very good job in the book of posing questions and then reaching some conclusions um, that I think are fair. And you know, he does give credit where credit is due to Trump. I think you were smart to bring up the uh, caper of pulling the American asset out of Russia. Uh, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. What we didn't get into, and again, I would encourage everyone to read this book. He's got another fascinating caper about the Chinese dissident Chen Guangzhen that is that he was a part of because it's when he was stationed in Beijing, uh, and that also was a riveting story. Yeah, I you know his book invites the question as to whether or not you like this style of foreign policy that's hyper-personalized. And, you know, that word hyper-personalized, I took that directly from the book because um, Fiona Hill uses that to describe Trump and his policy. You know, everything around um, what's happening, everything in this administration has become hyper-personalized. And there's a lot to criticize in that. But to his supporters, that's a feature, not a bug. It is a feature, not a bug. But, you know, uh, again, wisdom really only comes as the destination of curiosity. And so if you're going to hyper-personalize everything, then you want the person who is doing the 
the hyperpersonalization there to be as informed as possible and to have as much wisdom as possible. And so when you look at how he and he alone is, is driving these interactions and you compare that and contrast it to how his advisors felt about his curiosity, there's yeah. a quote in the book that I had to write down when I was reading. He said, in the simplest terms, the president's national security advisors didn't trust him to read. They don't trust him at all from the sounds of it. Um, there's a lot of people that it, it really appears as if there's a lot of people working very closely with the president that are apprehensive about him. I mean, there's another line that a senior administration official told Jim um, that he put in the book. He has a tendency, meaning Trump has a tendency to portray himself as both casualty and the cure. When the problem won't go away, he has to somehow uh, make himself the victim and the savior. And that self-focus, according to this former advisor, drives Trump's need to be out in front, to be the face of the response. And that sometimes causes problems, confusion and contradictions. It's really fascinating. Yeah, well, look, look, there's, there's no way to get from the problem to the solution when someone thinks that they're the victim and the only one that can... The same. Yeah. And so, you know, when you combine that, someone not being willing to read, we're talking about reading because everyone should agree. I want the most informed president that I can have. Everyone should agree on that. And this idea of he's great because he goes with his gut. What are the examples of that? And that's why I think this book does a good job of getting into while he's had some successes because he's been wanting to take some people on. By and large, this has been a litany of failures and a division of our alliances, which will have long-term effects. Yeah. And and you can point to examples of things where his gut has worked out. You know, the operation that killed Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian leader of the Qus forces, um, there was a lot of people who really criticized that, that that was going to cause major blowback and chaos, potentially lead to a hot war with Iran. And, he made the call and no one defended Soleimani as someone who, who, who shouldn't be potentially targeted. He's responsible for a lot of American lives. And, you know, that worked out. Uh, that did work out. Uh, and again, he took on China. Um, but if you look at the direction we've gone with Iran, the direction we've gone with North Korea, the direction we've gone with Russia. And I think that, you know, we talked about this earlier in the podcast. You know, we have spent a lot on NATO. But we've been the big beneficiaries of that. We are less than 5% of the world's population, and we are approximately 30% of the world's GDP. We've done great. It's worked out for us. And so when you look at these countries like Russia, which is 1.2% of the world's GDP, they can't catch us unless we slow ourselves down. And by not informing ourselves, by allowing division to Uh, run our belief system, uh, we will be slowing ourselves down and we will find ourselves in uh, a superpower fight uh, probably sooner than we had thought, whether it's with China, who had talked about 2050. And in this book, he points out they're now talking about being uh, at our level by 2030, or whether it's Russia, um, we have slowed ourselves down, believing that there are two truths to everything and there are two sides to everything. And as a result, we're this divided. Yeah. And we're going to get a verdict from the American people on this in a little over a month. 
This has been the Head in the Heart. Remember, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podcast One. Please rate and review us. We'd love to hear uh, from you as well as to who you'd like us to have one of these quote-unquote dinner conversations with. Uh, you can also go back and listen to prior episodes. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to the Head in the Heart. Remember, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podcast One. Also, please rate and review us. We'd love to hear your thoughts.